0: The reading this morning is found from 1 John chapter 1, starting at verse 5 and going through to chapter 2, verse 6. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. If we claim we have not sinned, we have made him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin, but if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defence, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world.
1: Last year, for the second half of the year, we tracked through the Gospel of John, and starting last week, we've begun on the letter which we call First John, so one of the letters that he did write. And this morning, I actually want to talk about walking. Do you know that there is actually a right way to walk? Now, if you're a physio or a podiatrist, you understand this. There is a right way and a wrong way to walk. We have a... Ministry couple that we catch up with about every year or two, and he's in ministry and she practices as a podiatrist. And, and you know how dinner conversations wander around. Well, we got on to talking about walking, and this was quite news to me that there is a wrong way to walk. And you may go, That's stupid. I'm upright, my legs are moving, that's walking, that'll do me. But she spoke about how if you don't walk right, it causes damage to your feet and it can cause other damage to parts of your body, which you go, Really? Your hips, your joints, your back? How can that be? So Physically, it's important to know how to walk right. And this is what John is actually talking about in this passage. He's talking about the right way to walk. He uses this metaphor of walking actually a number of times in this passage, of encouraging Christians to live right. The word that NIV, unfortunately, has increasingly translated, I noticed Bev, had walk at the end, and then it said live. The Greek word is the same, where it says walk in the darkness, walk in the light, walk with Jesus, walk like Jesus, it's all the same word. But NIV is trying to get rid of the metaphors and make it plain for people to understand. So they use the word live, which is unfortunate because it's a beautiful metaphor and we lose something out of the translation. But this is about walking like Jesus and this is the metaphor that John is using. He wants us to walk like Jesus. That last verse. Anyone who says, whoever says, I abide in him ought to walk just as he walked." Before we look at what it means to walk like Jesus, though, we do need to see where John starts, because John starts this section of his letter with another metaphor. So there's a metaphor of walking, but then there's also a metaphor of light. He says, God is light. That is obviously not a literal definition of God. It's a metaphor. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Now, this is quite a common description of God as God being light. And when the scriptures talk about God being light, there are two senses that this metaphor is wanting to convey. The first is that God is truth. In him there is no deceit, there is no lie. Truth is found in God and truth defines an aspect, a very strong aspect of who God is. He does not lie, he is not mistaken, he does not deceive and in God we find truth. In God we have truth revealed to us. And we know that God has given us his word in scripture that is God's truth revealed to us. So God is truth and what he reveals to us is also truth both in his word but also in the greatest of his revelations which is his son Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is truth. The second aspect of the metaphor that light conveys is to do with goodness, purity, Holiness. So when we talk about God being light, it's God is truth, but also God is perfectly good. He is, he is just defined as being good. There is not an evil thought or not an evil motive or an evil action. He is good and he is holy and he is pure. So in John's gospel, when he begins, he talks about Jesus and he describes, yes, I mean the gospel, not the letter. He talks about Jesus coming as the light of the world. That metaphor conveys those same two meanings about Jesus. That in Jesus the truth of God is revealed to us and John in his gospel says that Jesus comes full of grace and truth. Jesus himself when he speaks to people uses the word I tell you the truth. There is a sense in which again Jesus is not mistaken, he is not deceptive, he does not lie, he speaks truth, he embodies truth in who he is. Uh, And then there's also that aspect of Jesus, which is his perfection, a moral perfection, the goodness of God contained in flesh and blood like no one else. Jesus was indeed the perfect man, completely sinless. And so when we get to the first letter of John, we actually have these two metaphors being brought together this metaphor of actually walking right, and I really hope there's not too many physios here who are actually analysing my walking this morning, so I'm actually going to stand really still. But he brings these two metaphors together of walking and light, and he calls us to walk in the light and to walk just as Jesus walked. And those two things are the same. This is what he's talking about. He's bringing these two metaphors and he's using different ways of saying it, but he's saying that walking in the light, walking just as Jesus walked, this is what we are to do. This is how we are to walk. There's a number of things from chapters one and two that then he writes about. He unpacks to the hearers, to the readers, about what it means to walk right. And and just this morning, I want to pull out five of them. So these are five aspects of what it means to walk right. This is the first thing. Firstly, to walk right means to walk in the truth of who Jesus is and who we are in him. Does that sound familiar if you were here last week? These are the convictions that John starts with in the first four verses of this letter. The conviction of who Jesus is and who we are because of what he's done. John starts with his conviction that Jesus is the divine son of God. He lived, he died, he was raised to life again. And that he is the only way to the Father. He is the life and the truth. That in him we find life, we find eternal life. And combined with this, I'm doing this really short because you can hop onto our website and listen to last week's sermon if you want to. But the conviction that goes along with that, if this is who Jesus is, then what, who are we because of what he's done? And there's this conviction that John has that we've been brought into a family, that we have been brought into relationship. A relationship between us and God has been restored. And we've been adopted as his sons and daughters, brought into a family of brothers and sisters in Christ. There's words like ransomed and redeemed. We've been forgiven. And three times in this opening chapter and a bit of the letter, John speaks about what Jesus has done for us. And so he talks about if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And then he goes on to say, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. See, this is what Jesus has done. He has cleansed us of our sin and therefore our identity is as those who are forgiven, who have been reconciled to the Father. In verses 8 to 10, he continues with that. If we have no sin, and I'll come back to that, but then in verse 9, if we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So again, there's this aspect of our identity. This is who Jesus is. This is what he has done. And the result for us is that we have been cleansed of all unrighteousness. And then at the beginning of chapter 2, again just halfway through the first verse, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. It's this concept which is also, John uses this word to describe the Holy Spirit, the advocate, the one who comes alongside you. And there's this sense in which Jesus comes alongside us, not to testify that we are without sin, but to speak on our behalf to the Father presenting his own work on the cross as grounds of acquittal, grounds for our forgiveness. John goes on to say in verse 2 of chapter 2, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, but the work of Jesus doesn't just go for us. Not only ours, but for the sins of the whole world. And so the first way in which we are to walk like Jesus and walk right is to actually walk in truth. Walk in the truth of who Jesus is. Walk in the truth of who we are in him. There's a sense of to walk with Jesus, we need to walk according to his word that is revealed to us. So walk in truth. But secondly, to walk like Jesus, we need to walk with integrity. The word integrity, you may know the word integer, which means a whole number. There's a sense of wholeness. Integrity is about wholeness. We are whole people. Our words and our actions align. What we claim to believe matches with our actions. John says if we claim to have fellowship with the Father, if we claim to belong to him, if we claim to be in a relationship with him and yet walk in darkness, again this metaphor of actually walking out of truth, walking out of the sense of holiness and purity that God is, then we lie. We do not live out the truth. What John is referring to here is hypocrisy. The say one thing but do another. There's not a sense here that John is saying you cannot make a mistake because we do that. There are things that we do that are contrary to what we say is the right thing to do. There are times where we do this. What John is speaking about is choosing a lifestyle that is at odds with our declaration of faith. It is a two-facedness and a hypocrisy. I say that I am this but in reality I live like that. Now we know that Christians aren't perfect. And I don't think there are strong expectations from most people, maybe some, that Christians would be perfect. I haven't met too many people who would expect perfection of Christians. But there is an expectation, I think, of most people that we would, as would most people, live consistently with what we say we believe. Whether you're a Christian or, or an atheist or a Muslim, it really doesn't matter. There is an expectation, I believe, on all people, from all people, that we would live consistently with what we say is true or what we say we believe. And when you look at the Scriptures, when it comes to hypocrisy, it's one of the things that Jesus actually really lets rip at. Jesus is very compassionate and kind and loving towards those who are regarded as sinners. But if you want to read Angry Jesus, because there is an Angry Jesus in the Bible, go to Matthew chapter 23. My goodness, that is some sermon, and I am so glad that I was not on the receiving end of it. It's woe to you. They call it the seven woes. It's woe to you, you Pharisees. Woe to you, you hypocrites. He uses that word, hypocrites, hypocrites, hypocrites. And he says, these are the things you stand for, and yet this is what you do. And he uses very specific illustrations, like even to the point, you tithe your mint, you know, we've got a mint plant at the back of our place. I don't tithe my mint plant. I do not drop mint leaves into the offering bag. And Ian's very happy about that. But he goes, you tithe your mint. You tithe dill, for goodness sake. And yet, you ignore the weightier matters of justice and mercy and righteousness. And that's just one of the seven. There's something that gets Jesus angry when we read the Gospels, and that is hypocrisy. He doesn't get angry at people's sinfulness, where there's a confession and there's a repentance that comes with this, but he cannot bear to see religious hypocrisy. That's what John is talking about, this aspect of saying, well, this is who I am and this is what I believe and this is what I stand for, and yet doing completely the opposite. I think there's a certain ex-National Party leader who was condemned not so much because of what he did, but because the stand that he took on the sanctity of marriage in the months beforehand. You see, there's something that just grates when it comes to hypocrisy. And John says, don't be like that. You cannot say you walk in the light and yet walk in darkness. You want to walk like Jesus, walk with integrity. You see, what Jesus said is what he did. What Jesus believed shaped his entire life. He was consistent with what he knew to be true about himself and about his father walk like jesus walk with integrity let your words and your actions marry if you want to walk like jesus thirdly walk with humility humility is not about having a low opinion of yourself humility is having a right perspective actually of seeing ourselves as god sees us humility is one of the aspects of who jesus is he humbled himself to come to us ultimately he humbled himself in dying for us on the cross, the shame of the cross. But Jesus knew who he was in relationship to his Father. He knew that he had lived a perfect life. Now, we can't make that claim. And John warns those who would say, I have no sin. Or those who would say, well, I've never sinned. And he says, "You're self-deceived. But we need to walk in humility. I think some of us, perhaps most of us, have a remarkable ability to overlook our own faults. Have you discovered that? You may not have because it's about yourself. Let me put it a different way. Have you noticed how other people are much more sinful than you are and that their faults stand out much more? And I'm not meaning this as a criticism because I do it myself as well. We have this remarkable ability to overlook our faults. They're just like, oh, they're little character flaws. They make me cute. Or sometimes it is a little bit more sinister in that we know that we have a favourite sin, something that we know is not pleasing to God and yet we choose to pursue it. We are much better at seeing the faults of others than our own. Um, Jesus, I think, talked about specks in other people's eyes whilst having logs in our own. I also want to acknowledge, though, that for some of us, we get bogged down in sin. There's a sense of being overwhelmed with despair, the hopelessness of having an aspect of our life that we know is not about walking in the light. And we're not able to minimise it anymore. We're not able just to justify it or put it aside. But it actually plays deeply upon us. There's a sense of hopelessness and despair. Humility will deal with both of those attitudes because humility is seeing ourselves as God sees us. We are imperfect but loved. You understand that? We are imperfect but we are loved by our Father and we always have an invitation to join him at his table. John says that we are forgiven when we confess. That when we acknowledge our wrongs, we have a saviour and we have a father who is quick to forgive. Confession is an act of humility. To come before God or to come before a trusted friend and to actually confess our failing is an act of humility. It is an act of humility when we put aside justifying our sin, hiding our sin, making excuses for our sin, but simply coming and acknowledging that I need forgiveness. Jesus was perfect. We are not. But we need to walk like him with humility. I just want to say at this point that the gospel is all about grace. God comes to us in Jesus and does it all for us. This is not a message that says you need to try harder because that doesn't work. The gospel is about grace. We are called to come to a Father who loves us and who forgives us. But our response to grace cannot be dismissive. It can't be a sense of, oh, well, if there's grace, then I can just sin all the more. Because grace is free, but it did not come cheaply. And grace is not meant to lead us to a life of hypocrisy and denial. It's not meant to lead us to a sense of self-righteousness or arrogance. The response to grace is, is to walk like Jesus walked. Fourth way to walk like Jesus is to walk in obedience and this is in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 2. Verse 3, now we may be sure that we know him if we obey his commandments and he goes on to speak about obedience. Now we don't like the word obedience do we? Because obedience is something we apply to our dog or something we demand perhaps of those who are under us. We need to no longer see obedience as a terrible word. What we need to do is break the link of obedience with words such as have to, or should, or must. They're the horrible words, have to, should, must, and this loss of freedom. To see obedience as a loss of freedom and instead an adhering to rules that God has laid down for us. And this is where I think the try harder, try harder, come on, just try harder to keep the rules can be such a damaging way to live. Because if we take that approach. I have to try harder. I need to try harder. All we end up doing is finding that our motivation is all wrong and we will consistently fail. Obedience and submission was such a mark of Jesus' life. When you think about it, all authority on heaven and on earth was given to Jesus Christ, but he was obedient and he submitted himself to the Father's will. He obeyed the Father perfectly. But why did Jesus do that? Was it because it was written down somewhere in the handbook that he got given before he was a baby? Is it because he said, well, I just have to do this, or my father would expect me to do this, or I should do this? It's not motivated by that. What was Jesus' motivation for obedience and submission, do you know? It was love. It was love for the Father and love for us. It was not a had to, not a should, but it was out of love. You see, I would hope that it's not a chore for you to feed your children, I would hope that it's not a chore for you to actually make sure that they have a house to live in and clothes to wear. I would hope that you do those things, not because facts will come and take your children away from you if you don't, that that's your motivation. If I don't feed my children, if I don't clothe them, if I don't house them, then I'm going to lose them. I would hope that your motivation, and I would hope this is why my mum did it as well, is because of love. I would hope that if you're married or if you're in a relationship with someone, that your motivation for not cheating on them is not because it's wrong or because I shouldn't or because God says I shouldn't. I would hope that your motivation is what? That you love them too much to do that. See, if you live by rules, you will fail. That's history. If you live by rules, if you in your head think I have to, I should, I must, if that's what motivates you, you will never, never succeed in keeping those. Our motivation for obedience and submission must come from love. Love for the Father and love for one another. John uses a word, and again, the NIV's simplified it and taken it out, the word abide in verse 6. Whoever says, I abide in him, it's such a beautiful word. John uses it 40 times in the Gospel, 27 times in his letters. It's a sense of being in Christ and Christ in us, a deep deep relationship there's a sense in which we walk in obedience but it's based in that relationship a relationship of abiding a relationship that is marked by love and this is my last thing that i want to say if you want to walk like jesus walk with love In verse 7, which we didn't read this morning, and then right through chapter 3 as well, John just comes back and back and back to this again. Love, love. In verse 7 he says, Look, I'm not going to write you a new commandment. I'm just going to say the same thing again to you that you already know. Love one another. If you say you believe in God and do not love your brothers and sisters in Christ, you have got something wrong. Love. Where people are walking an authentic Christian life, there is grace and there is genuine love. A person with a humble knowledge of the need for God's mercy and grace will treat others as they know that God has treated them with grace and with love. And I love the fact that the standard that John places upon us is not to love others as we love ourselves because sometimes that's inadequate. The standard is not to love others as you love yourself. The standard is to love others as Christ loves them. None of us were born able to walk. Is that a fair statement? Okay, I'm not sure, maybe one of you were. You hopped out of the womb and off you went. (laughs) That would be scary. But as a metaphor, we need to remember that none of us were born able to walk. We all had to learn how to. We watched others walk and they encouraged us to walk. We crawled around for a while and then they held onto our hands for a while and then those same hands clapped us when we took our first steps when we learn to walk you see we're not born to walk but we learn to walk and that's why walking is such a great metaphor for the christian life you see we are all learning to live and to love like jesus that's what we're called to do to learn to live and to love like him we are learning to walk like him Life is about learning to walk in truth and integrity and humility. Life is about learning to walk like Jesus in obedience and in love. And at the start of the year, I just want to remind us that none of us will know what this year will bring. None of us knows what 2019 will bring. But we can choose the way in which we will walk into it. Does that make sense? We can choose the way in which we will walk into it. And John calls us to walk with Jesus and to walk like him. Allow me to pray for us all. Because Father, we, we need to be reminded of your love and we have done that this morning through your word and through the, the taking of, of the bread and the cup. We are reminded of your love for us expressed in Jesus Christ. You have given him to us filled with grace and truth. And he stands as our advocate, not pleading our innocence, but exchanging our unrighteousness for his righteousness. Father, may our lives be motivated by, driven by, controlled by love, your love for us and our love for others. May we indeed be people who walk in the truth of who you are, the truth of what you have done for us, and the truth, therefore, of who we are in Christ. And Father, whatever else this year brings, May we be those who seek to walk closely with and like Jesus. In prayer, in the reading of your word, in dependence upon your Holy Spirit, Father, we thank you for your presence with us, not only today, but in every day this week and throughout this year. Father, thank you for the way in which your Spirit will lead us, in which he will teach us and remind us of all that you have said. And Father, for those here this morning, who perhaps you've convicted around an area of life that is, is darkness rather than light, I would pray for courage and humility to confess to you and perhaps also to someone else, to come before you and then to acknowledge that aspect of their lives. But Father, I want to also pray for those who find themselves just burdened by a way of life or by a sin that they feel crippled by, that continues to play upon their mind and their heart. And Father, I pray that they would understand and see you as a God who is good and righteous and just and who, when we confess, forgives. Lord, give anyone within this room this morning just that freedom to walk in the truth of the forgiveness that is given, the forgiveness that is given in Jesus Christ. Father, may we live our lives in such a way that it brings glory to you. It brings glory to your name. Lord, give us love and humility, integrity, that aligns our words and our actions. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.